welcome to the Quantum Wire, news and information from the frontiers of the quantum information science revolution. We're coming to you from the Joint Quantum Institute, a research partnership of the University of Maryland and National Institute of Standards and Technology. I'm Kurt Suplee. And I'm Steve Ralston. And this week we're going to take an excursion into the weird world of ultra-cold chemistry reactions that take place in conditions that are so cold that really reactions shouldn't take place at all. And along the way, we're going to make a couple of stops, uh, one to explore an oddball phenomenon called wave-particle duality, and uh, we may also have a look at laser cooling, a phenomenon that's necessary for ultra-cold chemistry, but for a number of other kinds of experiments as well. And we have with us today Paul Julian, a theorist from NIST and a JQI fellow who has worked on a couple of papers recently dealing with ultra-cold chemistry. Thanks for coming, Paul. Glad to be here. And I guess the first question is, most people construe chemistry as a sort of uh, interaction amongst the electrons of different atoms that make chemical reactions and new compounds. That's not what we're talking about here, right? That's right. It's... um Uh, somewhat different because of the very cold temperatures. So normally I think of chemistry as, you know, what I did in high school chemistry where I have beakers and mixing things together and usually reactions work better when they're hotter, right? So how does ultra-cold chemistry work? Well, in order for two species to react, two molecules to react, you have to get them close enough together that they bump into each other. That's the way we normally think about it. Now the difference here, of course, is these molecules are extremely cold you know, a few billionths of a degree above absolute zero, which is about the coldest thing you can think of. So they must not bump into each other very often, right? Well, they don't bump into each other very often, and the reason is that when things get very cold, they slow down and get very slow. When they're very slow, they have very special quantum mechanical properties. They become wavelength rather rather than like uh, little hard balls like we normally think of atoms and molecules. Expand on that a little bit. Are these the famous de Broglie matter waves? Yes, basically. It goes back to the 1920s and Louis de Broglie and uh, the others who invented quantum mechanics uh, that um, atoms and molecules become very quantum when they get to be very, very slow. When they're very slow, you've localized their speed very precisely, which means they tend to get spread out in space and become very wave-like. So they're spread out in space over distances that are hundreds of times larger than what we normally think of as the size of a molecule. And ordinary size of a molecule being somewhere in the neighborhood of what? A fraction of a nanometer, um, maybe a quarter, a third of a nanometer. And so these guys, these ultra-cold guys, are interacting at what dimensions? They are, um, their quantum wavelength is hundreds of nanometers and they have to find each other as waves and uh, get close enough together that they actually can react. And so the question is, how does that happen? So Paul, you're a theorist, and some of what you've been thinking about, some of the theory that you've been developing is related to some recent results out of uh, the lab at Jilla? That's right. The experimentalists uh, out there were able to get molecules as cold as a few billionths of a degree absolute, which is a quite remarkable achievement. And then they were able to use them to study chemical reactions at those temperatures. So what what was the molecule they were using? The molecule they were using has two atoms in it, one potassium atom and one rubidium atom. So it's a potassium-rubidium molecule. The chemistry they did with it was to notice that when they had these... uh, 
molecules in their sample gas in the lab uh, at sufficient density that the molecules reacted with each other. They disappeared. They went away. And uh, they basically made potassium molecules and rubidium molecules. That is, the, the molecule that had one atom of potassium and one atom of rubidium disappeared, and it's the byproducts were still molecules, but they were diatomic molecules, two potassiums and two rubidiums? Yes, that's what we believe, yes. Right, so they just rearranged themselves. So two potassium, two rubidium swapped partners and ended up uh, hanging out with each other. Right. But how did the, the question that how they reacted is how these quantum wave-like objects could actually get together and find one another in the first place. And in order to understand that, we have to bring in some quantum dynamics. You can't think of these as little classical billiard balls. And that's really the new and novel aspect of these kinds of reactions. No one really quite knew uh, what these uh, reactions are going to do at these low collision energies. There are very long-range forces between the uh, two molecules. They're very well-known type long-range forces that uh, begin to be operative out at distances on the order of 5, 10, even 20 nanometers when they're quite far distant, far apart compared to the normal kind of chemistry distance of less than one nanometer that we normally associate with, with typical, typical chemistry. So what we figured out was how the quantum waves have to get together through that intermediate range distance of tens of nanometers, and uh, then what's the probability that actually could find themselves close enough together to react. So the, the Borley wavelength for these molecules is even larger than that, right? Yeah, so in a sense, the, the, if I think of them as these little wave packets, they're already starting to overlap before they were during the uh, reaction. Yes, they're overlapping as waves uh, that are very, very large compared to uh, the uh, very tiny volume in which they actually wind up reacting. So this idea that your molecules are acting like waves, this is an example of what we call wave-particle duality, another one of those uh, important concepts of quantum mechanics. Yes, that's certainly true. And uh, we also know that uh, particles have uh, a quantum wave size associated with them that's related to their speed. And as they slow down below the kind of fast speeds you have associated with room temperature molecules and you slow them down to be colder and colder and colder, this quantum wavelength gets longer and longer and longer. And eventually at these ridiculously low temperatures that they are able to achieve in these, these new experiments, the quantum wavelength gets to be quite large indeed. It even approaches the size you associate with the size of the width of a human hair. The leading one to ask the question, what is the property in nature that makes the wavelength get longer as the kinetic energy gets smaller? Tied up in that wave-particle duality is another aspect of quantum mechanics, the so-called Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which basically says if I know one property of, of uh, say, an atom very well, I don't know the other, or the other property is uncertain. And one pair of those properties is the speed and the position. And so as things get slower and slower, as their speed gets towards zero, which is what happens when something gets cold, the certainty or how well I can define its position becomes more and more uncertain, and it's easier to describe it as a wave rather than a billiard ball kind of particle. 
You know, some of our listeners may not know that the work we're talking about here depends on techniques and uh, discoveries that are only really a few years old. They're sort of brand new arrivals in the history of science. Uh, yes, it started with laser cooling of atoms. And that, that was in the mid to late 80s was the very first results on that, right? Yes, and that generated the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1997 and uh, led to the very exotic phenomena, uh, condensed matter phenomena of Bose-Einstein condensation being realized in 1995 in uh, NIST laboratories in uh, Boulder and also in uh, MIT at the time. And that gave the 2000 Nobel Prize was given for uh, Bose-Einstein condensation. So there's been a lot of excitement in science over being able to cool down atoms to very low temperatures in the vicinity of uh, Kelvin, billions of a degree absolute. And um, this progress with atoms promises to continue with molecules. The, these very ultra-cold molecules are only produced in 2008, quite recently, and uh, this field is just getting started, so it has a lot of promise for new science. Why was that so hard to do? Molecules can't be cooled as simply as atoms because they have much more complex structure uh, atoms have very simple internal structure that lend themselves quite nicely to laser cooling. Molecules simply can't be laser cooled, and you have to come up with other methods. Yeah, I remember from the early days of laser cooling, people were always scratching their heads trying to figure out how to laser cool molecules, and we still don't actually know how to laser cool molecules, really. I mean, so the way yes. these experiments get their molecules is a little bit different, actually. Yes, the way they make the molecules, actually, is to start with atoms that first had been laser cooled and then cooled by another uh, promising method uh, called evaporative cooling. So they start with very, very cold atoms. Then they're able to stitch them together to make the molecule. Now, now some folks may not absolutely understand the notion of laser cooling. Most people think of lasers as hot, that is to say something that conveys a lot of energy to something. You're talking here about cooling atoms or molecules with lasers. How does that work exactly? Well, light can exert forces on atoms, and uh, light is capable of slowing atoms down by uh, its uh, Kind of like if you shot enough uh, BBs or bullets at a train, you eventually would slow it down. Lasers have lots of photons, the very, very in intense sources of light, and therefore they can really exert sufficient force on uh, atoms to uh, slow them down. Yeah, one other example of how photons exert forces on things is the tail of a comet always points away from the sun. And part of that is due to the solar wind, the particles, but part of it is actually due to the what we call the radiation pressure, which is the sunlight bouncing off the particles in the tail of the comet. So that's a visible example of the forces that we use to slow down and cool our atoms. In fact, once upon a time, NASA had a plan to uh, set out a, an interstellar mission with a solar sail that would just do nothing but be a, like a titanic umbrella that would be whacked by uh, gazillions of photons and push it out toward whatever. Right. The, the problem is once you start getting far away, there's not a lot of sunlight. So your uh, forces kind of go away to zero as time goes on. So to bring us back to Earth, uh, Paul, can you tell us a, a little bit about the larger context of ultra-cold molecule research, where it's going, what its likely future significance will be? Well, the reason for 
studying these uh, very cold molecules is, first of all, they have some very special properties. Uh, that is, they're polar. They have an electric charge on one end and a different electric charge on the other end. So they have their what we call dipoles. Uh, dipoles have quite long-range forces, and we hope we can put these dipoles in little confining structures that they can make with lasers and uh, react them and interact them in very interesting ways to make new exotic condensed matter phenomena and to study uh, chemistry and control chemistry very precisely. So this is kind of doing chemistry from the, the molecules on up rather than the vat of chemicals on down. Yes. yes, instead of having a big vat of chemicals that are reacting, what we'd like to do is to put one molecule in one little trapping cell and another molecule in another little trapping cell and then uh, push them into each other very gently in the right sorts of ways so we can control all aspects of their reactions, the directions they come at each other. And uh, we think, uh, I mean, this is totally novel. People haven't been able to do this before. And if we had, like, lasers, we could perhaps talk to the molecules and turn on and off uh, the reactions or yes. choose which reaction channel they go in. We would actually like to turn off the reactions. We believe that by using uh, electric fields and uh, that this should be possible, and we would actually like to use these molecules as quantum bits for quantum computers if, if in the future. That's somewhat down the line if whether that'll be possible or not. But each molecule could be the carrier of a piece of quantum information. To make a qubit, you need two sort of, uh, you need a two-value system, a, a zero or one or an on or an off. How would that be embodied in these molecules? Well, these molecules do have internal states. They have nuclear spins, for example. Uh, you could code qubit information in different states of nuclear spin. They have different states of rotation. You could encode information in different states of molecular rotation. So they do have internal structure that can be used. But first, of course, you have to know how to control them, and that is where your analysis of the quantum mechanical dynamics at play comes in. That's right, yes. You have to take this into account. Uh, if these molecules were simply uh, little billiard balls, they would be attracted at long range by attractive forces and roll into each other and react with 100% certainty. They can't find each other, as it were, because they're wave-like, and the way in which they find each other is governed by these very weak long range forces, and the particular quantum aspects by which uh, these forces affect the motion, the quantum motion of these particles. So you can't do this with classical physics. You have to do this. These, understand these reactions with quantum mechanics. And it turns out to be somewhat simpler than we thought. Simple is good. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, in fairness, it doesn't really sound simple, but, uh, but I'm glad that it's simpler than you thought anyway. We were able to come up with a relatively simple expression that's not very complex mathematically that uh, could quantitatively explain the measured rates of the experiment. So that was quite gratifying. That's it for today. We hope you'll join us next time as we explore other elements in the exotic and exciting field of quantum information science. Meanwhile, you may want to stop by the website. That's jqi.umd.edu. There's a whole lot of multimedia material there, one sort or another, that'll help keep you up to date in this field. And while you're there, please take a look at the site for the Physics Frontier Center, supported by the National Science Foundation. That's pfc.umd.edu. So for Steve and the rest of the JQI fellows, thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.